Welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Joe Stoltz, digital historian here at Mount Vernon, sits down with Dr. Charlene Boyer-Lewis of Kalamazoo College to discuss her research on Peggy Shippen Arnold and her academic career. For those of you who will be in Mount Vernon on June 13th, please join us at 7 p.m. for the next Ford Evening Book Talk with author Colin Calloway about his book, The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation. Please be sure to find us on Twitter at GW Books and on Facebook at the Washington Library. Without further ado, here are Drs. Stoltz and Boyer-Lewis. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm really glad to be here talking with you, Joe. How has your fellowship been going? It has been a spectacular experience, probably one of the best of my scholarly career uh, to be here. It was came at just the right moment, as it does for a number of scholars, when I was at the beginning of a project and not really sure where I was going, and then was giving the time to figure out where I was going and the inspirational space to do that and the help of a lot of you guys. So it's been great. It's, I'm, I'm sad that it's ended. Now, where have you done fellowships before? At the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Take at, that, Monticello. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At uh, the Library Company and Historical Society of Pennsylvania, at the American Antiquarian Society. So, a number of places. Pretty, yeah. Virginia yeah. Historical Society. Yeah. I've nice. kind of been around. Well, we're new, but we're trying. Oh, that's great. It's a wonderful place. Um, so, let's talk about, before we get into uh, what you're working on while you're here, uh, let's sort. Of, I think it'd be sort of fun to frame that with what your work has been uh, before. Okay. I have sort of a question about something. I, I, I saw a theme maybe popping up that I'm curious will we'll just come out organically, or if not, I'll I'll just ask you about it. You'd be like, no, that's that's stupid. You're an idiot. <laughs> um, your first book, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on display, Planner Society at the Virginia Springs, 1790 to 1860. You got it right. I, well, I wrote it down, so that's oh, helpful. Awesome. Uh, I find fascinating, uh, one, because just for our listeners, if you're not familiar with the Virginia Springs, uh, by its historical, by their historical name, um, you, you might know them as either the Greenbrier Hotel where many NFL teams go to their, right. uh, their, their training camps prior to the season starting, or if you ever saw um, the story about the bunker that was built for That's Congress right. to go in in the event of a nuclear disaster. That's where we're talking about here. Those are the Virginia uh, Springs. So tell us about the Virginia Springs, though, uh, before the NFL. <laughs> well, there's a really long, storied history about the Virginia Springs before the NFL, though not unconnected, right? Because I look at the Virginia Springs as a place for identity formation in my book for Southern Planters, mm-hmm. Now for NFL teams, but so I argue that from 1790 to 1860, it is the most important space I believe where Southern Planter Society gathered pretty regularly. Some of them every single season, right? So every single summer um, for years and years and years and years to recreate their class, to recreate their status, to decide some important decisions. For instance, Henry Clay decided to run um, when he was at the Virginia Springs and kind of 
polled his fellow guests so and like realized. Place sitting in a sauna, like ex- what should I do with yeah, that? Yeah, in, in the bubbling waters, yeah. like maybe mm-hmm. I'm thinking president, and they were, yeah, you go, Henry. <laughs> so, and it was a marriage market. Lots mm-hmm. of young men and young women found each other at the Virginia Springs, and so recreated their class that way. So it's about how Southern planters used those resort areas to recreate class, power, status, but also that. It's a really, because it's a liminal space, um, it's a space that granted women lots of power. So unlike the plantation Mm -hmm. where they didn't have obvious displays of power, there's lots of obvious displays of power by women at the Springs because they kind of control who's in and who's out socially. And your social status at the Springs determined your social status elsewhere. If you were a failure there, you probably weren't going to have access to lots of plantation homes and townhouses off um, off the resorts, but at the resorts, if you were a success, you were going to be a success everywhere. So it was fun. It was a great place to write about. Nice. Now, what led you to that project? I had been interested. Were you at a spa? I have never been. Well, I didn't go to any of the Virginia Springs until after I wrote the book. <laughs> and I still haven't been at the Greenbrier. Can't afford to go there. Um, even though they have a historian who never invited me there um, after the book came out. But I've been to some of the other springs. And I was looking for a leisure history topic. I knew I wanted to do leisure history. I like leisure history because people choose what they want to do with their time, unlike work, where lots of people in the 18th and 19th century couldn't really make a choice. But you can make a choice about how you spend your leisure mm-hmm. time. And I kind of stumbled across the Virginia Springs when I was working on a project at my master's about Mackinac Island. And mm-hmm. I saw that mm-hmm. other people had gone to the Virginia Springs. And I just thought, huh. What is this place? And a lot of people hadn't written about it. So it was an easy project to do for my dissertation and then my first book. And Ed Ayers was my dissertation advisor. He loved it. He thought there was a lot of interesting stuff going on, multiple layers of things happening at the Virginia Springs resorts that I could unpack. And it was, it was, it was a really good book for a dissertation right, because it let me do lots of things. I also wrote a lot about the landscape, so I used lots of landscape history there, and I also did a lot about health and medicine, so one-third of the book is about health and, and medical research at the time, too, so it let me do lots of different things. It was it's, a wonderful project. Now, um, it, Oh, and Washington went to the Springs, by the way. Just need to throw that in there. We, Warm Springs. We, we do like our, we do like our George Washington <laughs> yeah. connections, uh, but we were going to get plenty of that eventually today, I suspect. Um, but with the uh, the springs, uh, for, for those of our, our listeners that haven't had the chance to read the book yet, I'll ask for them uh, to try and tempt them or, or uh, to read it themselves or, or answer, maybe get you to answer some questions preemptively. Um, you know, was, was this a retreat that was used by, by sort of the Beltway, DC, pre-Beltway DC scene or? Um, I think you could argue that. Did most people just get out of the city? Um, Well, they're all leaving their disease-ridden plantations and cities, right? Um, Because the height of the season is July and August Mm -hmm. and September, just when everything's getting really bad with yellow fever and malaria, et cetera. And so they are— D.C. was a swamp. Yes, filled with mosquitoes, by the way. (laughs) So they're looking for a place to retreat. Mm-hmm. And recreate, literally. yes, yeah. exactly, literally, and that's why they bring all their, you know, all their slave servants with them mm-hmm. too, because they're not. This isn't camp. Um, <laughs> these resorts are gorgeous. These resorts mimic their plantation architecture. Um, their resorts bring over all of their rules about gentility and refinement. So it's not summer camp. They're not off having fun. Um, 
you know, letting loose uh, in anything, I argue it's a superheater of gentility. Mm -hmm. And so the rules matter even more. But it is certainly a place where the movers and shakers know that it would be good for them to go, even if it's not directly politically related, like it was for Henry Clay mm -hmm. um, or James Henry Hammond. He also regularly shows up. It, they knew that it mattered to their larger persona to have the cachet of spending the time mm -hmm. at, at the Virginia Springs. So in that sense, it is like D.C. in the summertime. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was on one of the, the major rail lines. Eventually, or, yeah, eventually, one, yeah, one of the first important rail lines out from D.C. heads out to White Sulphur Springs in Falkir County. Um, it was too hard to get to the Green Pirate at the yeah. time. They don't get a railway there until after the Civil War. But Warrington Springs in Falkir County mm -hmm. gets gets one of the first direct connecting railways. Exactly. I mean, you've just been on the train for a while leaving D.C. It's hot. Mm -hmm. You decide mm -hmm. oh, stop off. Um, now, your next book, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, An American Aristocrat in the Early Republic. Uh, one, it's fun, I think, that this weekend uh, Americans are all in a tizzy about the royal wedding. Yes. Uh, so I don't think yes. we've ever sort of lost our, our fandom of aristocracy. But tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. She's a and, woman. And, yeah, that Bonaparte. Exactly, that Bonaparte. She's a woman behaving badly, which is what attracted me to mm -hmm. her. But she's a Baltimore... The, the daughter of the second wealthiest man in Baltimore, right after Charles mm -hmm. Carroll. So William Patterson, her, her father is a very wealthy merchant, and she's his eldest daughter. And she runs into Jerome Bonaparte while he's supposed to be fighting down in the Caribbean, but decided to take a break because it was a little... <laughs> A little, it was hot. And, you heard about some really nice hotels. And like naval springs. war wasn't exactly his thing at the time, and he wanted to have some fun. So he comes to the United States, and he meets her and wants, I think, wants to go to bed with her. But she says, no, you have to marry me. And so he agrees, and she badly wants to get out of Baltimore. She thinks Baltimore, she calls it a desert, and, and can't wait to get out. And she has, you know, monarchical, aristocratic visions for herself. And an empire isn't so bad. And so she latches on to Jerome Bonaparte. They get married. Napoleon divorces them 18 months later, but not before she has a son that Napoleon wants. And so she negotiates with Napoleon about all of that. And that's what's really interesting about her. And be, during her negotiations with Napoleon, she becomes such a threat that Congress passes what could have become the 13th Amendment against her, the Titles of Nobility Amendment. It's all because of mm -hmm. her that they wanted to pass that amendment, and it falls short of two or three states right before the War of 1812 breaks out. So it was almost the 13th Amendment, and it's all because of her. Yeah, now that was going to be um, sort of my next question, uh, was how did sort of the American public respond to, you know, an American, you know, I think nowadays we're sort of fascinated by the idea of an American marrying into aristocracy, but... Uh, how in the era when, you know, the United States has sort of just left an aristocracy uh, or formal aristocracy, I guess I should say, uh, how did they respond to it? Well, it depends on which Americans you're talking yeah. about, right? A lot of Americans totally fascinated, thought she was the most fashionable woman because she was married to a Bonaparte, invited her to every single party, invited her to every single dinner. So she is just, you know, the belle of the ball. At all of these parties, they she's on everyone's guest list. So she's not getting shunned mm -hmm. because of to whom she's married. Now, she does cause immense problems for Jefferson, 
for Livingston, who's trying to finish the Louisiana Purchase, and Napoleon walks mm-hmm. to Livingston and says, you have to stop this marriage. And Livingston says, oh, my God, Napoleon wants us to stop this marriage. And Jefferson says, you need to tell him I'm not an emperor. I'm a president. I can't do this. I can't stop this marriage. Right. So she's a headache for some for the big, important American mm-hmm. policymaker. She's a real headache. And members of Congress are nervous about her, immensely nervous, hence the titles of the nobility mm-hmm. amendment. But in general terms, for all the fashionable set, uh, the women who you know invited everyone everywhere in Washington, D.C., She's on every guest list. She's at every party. She gets multiple marriage proposals. So she's a hit. She's an absolute hit here and in Europe. They also really like her in Europe as well. Why, why in Europe? She We've was— have got the fill of aristocracy, so— Exactly, but she was a Bonaparte, mm-hmm. right, even after the divorce. And so that mattered. Um, a lot of these aristocrats— are older aristocrats, and she was even a hit with the newer ones, the ones that Bonaparte made, Napoleon mm-hmm. made aristocrats. But she was vivacious. She was gorgeous. She was charming. She was witty as hell, super sarcastic. She's kind of snarky, and yet everyone likes to interact with her in mm-hmm. exchange. I think she was captivating. I think she was absolutely captivating. And, um, you know, the Duke of Wellington gives her a dog that she calls Napoleon. You know, I mean, so... <laughs> What kind it's, of dog? It's a little tiny dog. I, I, I had never found out exactly what kind. But she also used to walk around with her own dog in Paris, and his name was Lulu. And everyone knew him. And he got invited to parties, too. So they would invite her. They would say Madame Bonaparte and Lulu um, to, to come with her to the parties. So she's just, you know, um, when the book first came out and somebody asked me to compare her to Paris Hilton mm. and all of these other kind of wannabe celebrities. And I said they wish they were her. Yeah. I mean, she was the ultimate celebrity in this time period. She really was. She had it all. Now, did um, any in the early republic, did it, did it sort of break down to some extent politically? Who were, you know, because you always hear about the Federalists always being like, you know, the sort of Republican stereotype yeah. is that the Federalists are enamored yeah. with titles and you know, uh, or I guess at this point, though, is the is the Federalist Party more on the ropes for some of this? Well, not I mean, at first, yeah. right? Because she she marries um, Jerome in, in in Christmas Eve of eighteen o three. So you, you know, the Federalists mm-hmm. are are you know still a force, but Republicans find her enchanting too. She becomes one of Dolly Madison's best friends, and she spends lots of time with the Madisons. And so it's not as if mm-hmm. they're rejecting. This aristocrat, this imperial connected woman, right? I mean, the people who are setting the tone, Dolly and James Madison, invite her in. She literally spends lots and lots and lots of time with them, weeks um, with them when she visits them in Washington, D.C., and put their imprimatur on her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think helps her tremendously, that Dolly Madison adores her. And so that's going to ensure her acceptance, even after she's a divorce. She gets a divorce from the Maryland legislature, and Dolly Madison keeps inviting her to parties, so everybody else does. It's really amazing how she could work the social scene um, through her friends, through her connections, but through her own self-presentation, through her clothing, through her demeanor, um, by portraying herself as, you know, the one who had fate tragically destroyed because mm-hmm. Napoleon wouldn't accept her and she was cast back onto her Baltimore desert and so people felt sorry for her now i forget was was Napoleon's main grievance cuz he he wanted 
Jerome to be able to marry into some more traditional European. That's right. He's trying to graft his family That's right. onto. That's right. He had already set off yeah. marrying his brothers and sisters. And so when Jerome defies him and marries what he called your little girl, mm-hmm. right, um, which was another also word that they use for prostitutes. So mm-hmm. that's kind of tells you what he was thinking about Elizabeth. And that's when Jefferson has to remind him that she comes from one of the best families mm-hmm. in the United States, that she's not, um, you know, a little girl mistress kind of prostitute who you can just cast off. But, yeah, Napoleon had his sets sight higher for his yeah. brother. His brother hadn't been a very good naval commander, not very good in the military, so he's kind of not helping Napoleon at all. And the one way he could help him was by marrying a princess. Yeah. And so that's why he divorces him, so he can marry the princess of Württemberg. Yeah, that's what I was going to go with next. Is you know, I mean, when you're when you're marrying into the Württemberg nobility, yeah. though, are you really trading up from Baltimore? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he gets to become king of Westphalia, yeah. which he then bankrupts, right, and basically destroys Westphalia. But yeah, Baltimore probably would have kept making yep. the money. Yeah. Yep. Um, so speaking of uh, influential women. Uh, let's talk about your current project. That's a good segue, Joe. Uh, well, you know, there's a reason they pay me to do this. That's yeah, not entirely true. Um, Peggy Shippen. Mm-hmm. Peggy Shippen Arnold. That's right. Um, what, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but what led you to wanting to work on Peggy Shippen Arnold? Another woman behaving badly yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that I was looking for for a next book project. There are lots of women who behave, behave badly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the, but too many of them behave well, and they're kind mm-hmm. of boring to write about, right? So women who do what they're supposed to do and follow all the rules um, can get accolades like Abigail Adams, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody loves Abigail Adams. Um, but I'm far more interested in the women who don't behave well, mm-hmm. who do who kind of do things on their own sometimes, which is what Peggy Shippen Arnold does. I mean, she ends up being a very devoted wife. One Mm -hmm. could argue that's why she commits treason, right, is to be a devoted wife. One could argue that she is fulfilling the model wife role by helping her husband commit treason. But she's far more fun and far more interesting than, than women who didn't do a bad act, commit a bad act, right? So, um... Without revealing too much, right? Because we don't want to ruin we, the story. Yeah, well, we we, <laughs> we 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 want our listeners to buy your book when it comes out and see all the sure the great research years from now. Yeah, so it's going to be years from now. But let's give them a little taste right now, if you don't mind. You know what? Uh, what have you? Been, what are some of the things you've been uh, most excited to find uh, since you've been here that you can tell us about now? Well, there are a number of things that. I have kind of thought through while I was here. I was at the very beginning of my research when I got here, so I've spent the three months thinking deeply as well as doing research about what I've been finding. And what's really interesting probably most is how much the men involved in the treason, so General George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette, were all there at West Point when the treason is revealed, when John Andre gets captured and Benedict Arnold um, is known as the one who gave Andre all the information, and he flees. And he leaves Margaret Peggy behind, his wife. And all of these men are convinced she's innocent. Mm -hmm. Part of it helps that she has this mad scene, as one historian calls it, right? She breaks down into hysterics. And I think that convinces them that she's innocent, right? And they really want to believe that she's innocent. 
she's a lady, she's a wife, she's, you know, in this refined woman who, whose trauma, right, is a sign that she's innocent. And they really believe it. And that's what I, you know, reading there, Washington writes a little bit about it. Hamilton writes an incredibly long letter to his fiancée about this hysterical episode of Peggy's. The Marquis de Lafayette writes about it. Um, Benedict's aide, Richard Varick, writes about it. And they all really, you know, desperately want to believe she's innocent. They can't conceive of a lady not being mm-hmm. innocent. And so she fits all of their stereotypes. And it's great. I mean, it's just this amazing, rich scene to have some really important historical figures mm-hmm. all in one room, Hamilton, Washington, Marquis de Lafayette, watching this poor woman kind of be emotionally destroyed because her lousy husband has, you know, left her behind to face the music because the jig is up and he's got to get out of town. And it, and so that's a great scene that I've paid a lot of attention to since I've been here mm-hmm. um, that has really revealed to me ideas about gender, uh, definitions of how women act and how women don't act, as well as gentlemen, right? These men all believe they have a sense of honor. They believe themselves to be gentlemen. They believe there's a certain way you react when ladies break down like this. And so that's a that's a fascinating moment in the treason that I've spent a lot of time with since I've been here. Uh, the other interesting thing that I've been paying attention to is kind of the absence of information about her once the treason's over. It's as if everybody kind of wants to put it it behind. And while they still complain about Benedict a lot, and especially because he's down in Virginia mm-hmm. and then in Connecticut, you know, committing all sorts of depredations it's and killing all sorts of people. Yes, exactly. Um, but she just disappears kind of from people's discussions yeah, no, where, where of, of the treason. She, well, she goes over to New York City because yeah. they exile her from Pennsylvania. Yeah. She chooses to go back to her family after the treason, but the executive council won't let her stay. So she gets exiled and she joins Benedict in New York. And very in in about a year, she goes to England with him and then he comes back. Um, but she goes to England and she's spending most of the rest of her life in England. She only lives till she's 1804 with a short kind of sojourn in Canada because Benedict keeps trying to make mm. money. And so he's trying to make money in Canada. And she so she lives in Canada for about a year. But she spends most of the rest of her life in England as a loyalist, right? Mm-hmm. And we kind of forget that they're loyalists. We kind of think of the treason and traitor and we don't think of them as loyalists, but they're kind of the arch loyalists in a way. I mean, who else? Mm-hmm. Kind of was willing to commit this kind of act, um, you know, on behalf of the king. So she spends her life as a loyalist. She has, you know, several children. Um, she got a pension from the government for her role in it. So she kind of lives her life as a middle class kind of, you know, woman, loyalist, out missing her family. She returns only to Philadelphia once, and it's clear Philadelphians don't want her around. That reception was very chilly, very cold, not from her family, but from her neighbors. And so what was supposed to be a very long visit becomes a very short visit, and she never returns to the United States after that. Hmm. Now, um, you know, I think it'd be fair to say, if I run through in my head the list of different uh, sort of pop culture uh, movies and TV shows and stuff featuring you know the American Revolution. Obviously, Benedict's uh, whole ordeal gets uh, gets a lot of screen time. Yeah. Traditionally, uh, and there's a you know, and, and therefore Peggy gets a lot of yeah. uh, screen time. Right? Because I think we love to have the idea of like, well, she lured him into it, right? Or, That's right. Uh, you know, what do you think are some of uh, the top misconceptions about Peggy? Well, that one that you just said, 
Um, that she lured him in. That yeah. she lured him into it. I mean, there are a lot. It's not just in TV and movies, but a lot of historians argue that you know they they put the whole treason at her feet. That mm-hmm. that because he first kind of approaches the British one month after they got married, everybody links it mm-hmm. to her as if he would had no reason to turn until he married her. So she's that's one of the biggest myths that she is kind of the ultimate temptress. She, she led him, him over yeah, to the dark yeah. side. He never would have done it without her. And it's her relationship with Andre, right, that causes all Secret of this. Affair, yeah. 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 So there is no romantic attachment to Andre. But I will say the truth of one piece of truth to that is, is that it is her relationship with Andre which makes it easier because yeah. she and Andre had been friends under when the British occupied Philadelphia. It was very easy for her, perhaps, to suggest, oh, you're thinking about going over to the British? I have, you know, one of my closest friends is now adjutant general, um, and and he might be the guy to reach out to. What they didn't know at the time is that he was also the spy master, right, for Clinton. Mm -hmm. Um, They find that out later, of course, but it is her relationship with him that that sets it up. So that's a big, huge myth, um, that she was... And that her father were ardent loyalists is also a myth. There's no sense that they were ardent loyalists. Edward Chip and her father was trying to maintain a neutral line, playing mm-hmm. as best he could, staying on the fence. I don't think he really wanted to commit himself. Um, he has relatives fighting for the Patriots. He has relatives that are, are in loyalist armies. I think he tried to dance that dance as best he could. He does it successfully. Um, better than his daughter did. And so they're not ardent loyalists either, right? So she's not that temptress. She's not that that ardent loyalist. Um, And another myth is that she's completely innocent, that she had nothing to do with it, that, you know, she was either too flighty or, Mm -hmm. you, you know, or a wife and not knowing what her husband was doing. And so that's another myth. She clearly knew what was going on. The, the, the records, if you look at them carefully enough, reveal a role for her. Uh, Andre's first correspondence with the Arnolds makes it clear that she is a player. She's got a code name. Mm-hmm. They call her either the lady or Mrs. Moore. And he also suggests that she can write to a friend and interlining in invisible ink will be secret information. Mm-hmm. And then that friend can send that letter to Andre. So it's perfectly clear that she knows she's part of it. Um, so she's not solely responsible, nor is she duped by her husband somewhere in the middle. Yeah, well, I, 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 I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, did we, I don't know, I don't know if it's fair to say that I think Americans forget that there are loyalists, but I, th- I think the whole, I think lots of times in sort of popular uh, conception today, uh, I notice a lot when we're dealing with school groups and, and just different uh, groups here at Mount Vernon, you know, that, and people want to ask us about the loyalists as if they're yeah. this, this this uh, hardened demographic that you can sort of easily point to, and uh, when you when you start to talk to people about well, loyalism is fungible and can change given circumstances and time, and you know th- the whole Andre thing uh, and 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 Arnold thing blows up in the fall of 1780. Yeah, when I mean the U.S. is getting its butt kicked. Yes, I mean Washington hasn't been able to field an offensive campaign in two years. You know, this is the summer of 1780 when the French army shows up. That's right. Rochambeau's like, okay, where are we going? And and Washington's like, well, I I, I don't actually have money to go anywhere right we're now. We're just going to stay um, around here. So we're, we're just you yeah. you can hang out in Connecticut because we literally don't even have money to help your soldiers get to West Point to meet up with the main 
army, right? Washington. And this is what Benedict is frustrated yeah, about. Yeah, this is what Benedict's frustrated yeah. about. And it's literally coming back from a meeting with the French when Washington is at West Point and discovers all of this, right? So That's I mean, right. I always find it amazing when, um, you know, we sort of talk about Arnold's treason uh, as if Washington himself and everybody else hasn't already committed treason once by That's going right. against the crown. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, the title of your project is The Traitor's Wife, Peggy Arnold and Revolutionary America. I mean, technically speaking, that could be The Traitor's Wife, George Washington and Revolutionary sure. America, right? Like that, that is a thing. Uh, sure. But in, yeah. And if For you the British, get, Martha Washington is, an, is a traitor. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and if yeah. you want to handicap. Abigail the, Adams is a traitor. Yeah. And if you want to handicap in the fall of 1780, who's going to win this conflict? Yes. You know, one could argue Arnold and, and, and or both are, the Arnolds, the Arnolds yeah. are making a smart choice yep. to, okay, maybe this whole revolution thing's not. Go yeah, maybe now, yeah. maybe this now is, is a good time. This is to why I think they're calculating, yeah. right? They're calculating, they're assessing, they're weighing, they're making choices. It's not just, oh, I'm so mad at the Patriots for not treating me right. I'm just going to go head off and get a lot of money. He's Benedict's convinced at that moment, and you're right, fall of 1780 matters. Mm-hmm. And not enough people pay attention to the fact that it's fall of 1780, that things are looking pretty grim. And, and he did not want the French to become a part of the effort, and they do, and he's. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's from New England. New yeah. England is by far the region most opposed to the idea of French intervention. Right. I mean, John Adams is convinced Louis XVI is going to come in and, and create a, a papist, a papist regime. Exactly. Of, exactly. You know, so it's not as if Sully, Benedict, the new yeah. city on the hill. So Benedict and Mar- Margaret aren't the only ones saying, um, excuse me. Now, they did need the money. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's about money. I think ultimately mm-hmm. they, they were running out of money and the patriots weren't giving them money. And. Benedict says, hey, how about 10,000 pounds? And Andre says, okay. You know, Clinton says, no, only 6,000. But, but, but Andre says, okay, I can get you 10. So it is about money as well. But, but there are calculations, and that's what matters. The context of all of this, I think, is what matters, right? Yeah. How to understand her and how to understand him, you really need to understand the context. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is an eight-year war. That's right. <laughs> Attitudes change over time. That's right. Um, that's right. And so that's what I say. She goes from loyalist yeah. flirt to patriot bride to traitor's wife, mm-hmm. right? And and she's are this, making are this choices. Your section titles? I think so. Don't they good, sound yeah. good? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm not your editor, but I think that would sell. <laughs> um, well, sort of to, to wrap up, let's let's uh, let's let's see if we can put a pin on your whole career here uh, with a, with a, with a question. I was thinking of sort of uh, looking through uh, what you've written. Um, you know, we have ladies and gentlemen on display, Planner Society in, in Virginia Springs, uh, Elizabeth Panner Bonaparte. Uh, and, and Peggy Arnold. It strikes me, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think an interesting theme to your work is about people performing for other people. Yes. Uh, would you say that's... Yes. And yes. Is, is that something you sort of... Yes. Draws I, you to these yeah, projects? I would say, I mean, that's a key piece, because I would say it's about how people are creating identity and performing identity, right? And so it's right. It's all about perform people creating performances, crafting performances for other people. Because it doesn't matter what you do in your own room, mm-hmm. right? Um, you've, you need to perform for others if you want the status of being a genteel person, a refined person, right? So this goes back to Richard Bushman's mm-hmm. argument about refinement, how you can't be refined sitting by yourself in your bedroom, right? You need to go and be refined for other people. But it's more complex than that, right? Because it's through those performances that people are establishing who they are, what matters to them. And then when you get 
a bunch of people together, what matters to them as a group, as mm-hmm. a, as, as a so- social group, um, and defining their beliefs, defining their, their system of beliefs about gender, their system of beliefs about class, their system of belief about hierarchy, um, about aristocracy, about small-R republicanism or small-R democracy, is coming out in those performances mm-hmm. and how those performances are judged. And the reason why I like looking at performances, and I love it that you got this, Joe, you're so smart. I knew you were smart. Um, is that men and women are involved in those equally. Mm-hmm. Both men and women craft performances. Both men and women judge them. And there are moments and spaces where women are doing the judging more than men, and those are the times that I'm really interested in them, like nice. at the Virginia Springs. Well, I'm glad I figured that out successfully. Yeah, you're awesome. Um, and speaking of performances, uh, uh, my producer is telling me that uh, this performance has to come to a close. Okay. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for joining us, and thank you all for listening. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. Great. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.